Let me just say that it's no secret that I'm a huge football fan in general and an Atlanta Falcons fan in particular. And so part of me could appreciate in the beautiful and powerful words of Sister Chanel, the illustration of Julio Jones catching that ball along the sidelines. But another part of me realizes it's too soon, Chanel. <laughs> it's still too soon. Moses entered the cloud. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on that mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. With your prayers and the Holy Spirit's power, dispirited yet dignified. Dispirited yet dignified. My friends, we've all heard the saying that a picture is worth a thousand words. I believe this to be true. Yet some photographs capture the contours and complexity of a moment better than others. These are the photos that we consider iconic. Consider Nick Utz's Pulitzer Prize winning photo of a nine-year-old Vietnamese girl, Kim Phuc. Her image seared into our memory just like napalm seared her naked flesh that day in 1972. Or consider the more recent photo of five-year-old Amran Daknish. He's the Syrian boy, photographed sitting dazed and bloody inside of an ambulance in Aleppo. Such images capture the horror and humanity of war. Such images challenge our willful ignorance. Such images name the exorbitant price of our collective indifference. And while some iconic images reveal the depths of human suffering, others project the height of human courage. Recall Amelia Boynton, John Lewis, and other protesters along the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Seeing Boynton endure blows from Sheriff Joe Clark's cattle prod, that image helped us to see what some were willing to sacrifice for the cause of justice. Similarly might be said of the unknown protester standing down a tank in Tiananmen Square. That picture provided a powerful moral lesson. Steel-made weapons of war are rendered futile before a human spirit that seeks to be free. And this, my friends, is how I feel about Jonathan Bachman's picture of Aisha Evans. This photo, this was the image that captured the 
recent protest. It was an image from last summer in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. A young woman standing seemingly serene and tranquil in the middle of the street. Standing there in stark contrast to the two police officers that descended upon her to arrest her. The officers, they appear clunky in full riot gear as a slight zephyr catches the bottom of her sundress. Despite being heavily armored and weaponized, the police appear anxious. Miss Evans appears calm and confident. The officers signify the disrupting backdrop of what, why, and what, and the reasons why the protests were taking place in the first place. Another unarmed civilian killed by state power. The militarization of the police and the rhetoric of law and order laced in economic and racial inequality. But this woman, however, she projected the exact opposite. Calm and chaos, self-assuredness and strength, dignity in the face of dehumanizing circumstances. Now, my brothers and sisters, there's a reason why this morning I evoke this image. For it's this image of Aisha Evans that came to my mind when I reviewed the scripture lessons for this Transfiguration Sunday. The image of power under control, certitude in the midst of uncertain circumstances, and how to maintain dignity despite disquieting confrontations. Transfiguration Sunday is the time where we recall the pivotal moment in the life of Jesus. It's the moment where Jesus goes up the mountain to commune with God. He's preparing for that final dangerous path of his ministry, the path that leads him away from the praise and popularity of the crowds to the pain and heartbreak of an unjust crucifixion. A path that leads away from folks celebrating his name to that same crowd yelling, crucify him, give us Barabbas. So it's on top of that mountain, it's on top of that mountain that we see and we read that Jesus had a critical conversation, a critical conversation with the prophets who came before him, Moses and Elijah. It was this time with Moses and Elijah, it was this time with God, this time with the ancestors that forever changed Jesus. The radiance of God and the glow of God's grace rests upon Jesus' countenance. And despite the trials that are to come, despite the persecution that is soon to ensue, despite the horrors of Crucifixion Friday and the injustice of state-sanctioned execution, Jesus will not waffle or Jesus will not waver. He's calm. He's still come to bring the good news to the poor. He has still come to proclaim release to the imprisoned. He's still come to provide sight to the blind. And he has still come to let the oppressed go free. Jesus has a job to do. And I believe on this morning that this is a message that we would all do well to receive. 
This is an important lesson for those of us here. This is an important lesson, particularly for those of you, our students, our students who have your whole lives and your whole careers ahead of you. Our students are young. You're gifted. You are passionate. You're compassionate. You paint ideal castles in the sky. You're able to envision beautiful kingdoms of equity and justice for all of God's children. You push us. Cynicism born of age and experience and injustice, they have not dimmed the bright lights of your moral imagination. Thus, Transfiguration Sunday and the seasonal shift to Lent can serve as a powerful and productive reminder to you before the dim lights begin to overtake your consciousness. You and I must develop strategies now to prepare ourselves from the frustrations of the future. We must prepare ourselves. You must prepare yourselves for the inevitable heartbreak, for compassion fatigue, and for the disillusionment that's sure to come. All of these realities are real. And they, they, my beautiful college students, they lay in wait just around the corner like an angry and unruly mob. They're laying in wait ready to attack your spirit. But this is an important lesson, not just for our students, but it's an important lesson for all of us. Each one of us has to wake up each morning and each day trying to hold on to our faith. How many of us are trying hard not to end up overwhelmed by more bad news? When it seems like evil and injustice are everywhere. When it seems like all news is bad news, when it seems like our society takes two steps forward only to take three steps back, it's easy to begin feeling like blues man T-Bone Walker. Some of y'all know this, they call it Stormy Monday, but Tuesday's just as bad. They call it Stormy Monday, but Tuesday's just as bad. Wednesday's even worse, and Thursday is oh so sad. Y'all need to go listen to the blues. <laughs> but I came by here to tell somebody this morning. I came by here to tell somebody that I think we can learn a powerful lesson from somebody who knew something about singing the blues. I'm not talking about Jesus here, though Jesus was, of course, a blues man. But I'm talking about the original blues man in the Hebrew tradition. I'm talking about Brother Moses. For if anybody knew something about feeling dehumanized and dispirited, if anybody knew something about feeling disquieted and dejected, if anybody knew anything about feeling depressed and despondent, it was this man named Moses. For one, Moses, from his very birth, he had to deal with the travails of life. Why? For one, Professor Nasrallah, Moses was born illegal. You've heard the story of his birth. There arose a pharaoh in Egypt that knew not of Joseph. And this pharaoh was both ethnocentric and narcissistic. 
This Pharaoh felt overwhelmed by the Hebrews. He embraced the Egypt first agenda. When enslavement wasn't enough, he ordered that all the sons born of Hebrew women be executed. And thus Moses was born outside of the protection of Egyptian law. He was born dead, born illegal. And if it had not been for the cunning and quick thinking of his mother, we would never known about this man named Moses. Why? Because Egyptian society would have aborted his beauty and his brilliance at birth. He was born illegal. But not only did Egyptian society render him illegal at birth, they sought to frame him as ungrateful in adulthood. Does anybody here remember what happened to Moses? When his mother cast him down the Nile River, Pharaoh's daughter discovered him. She took him in as a pet and hired his own mother to raise him. His mother, therefore, became the one who taught him about his background. She taught him about the God of Abraham and Sarah. And when Moses came of age, he could no longer tolerate the suffering of his people. And this is why Pharaoh cast him out of the royal palace. Pharaoh labeled him an ingrate. Pharaoh labeled him ungrateful. I can hear Pharaoh looking at him and saying, all this country's done for you, Moses. You've had the best education. You've benefited from privilege and access. And you're concerned about some people who shouldn't even be here in the first place. If you don't like it, why don't you leave it? I'm here to tell somebody Moses knew something about the blues. Yet it was this hope born of the blues that bred Moses' courage. And this is why with little more than the authority of his faith and the privilege of his faith and identity, he went and he stood right before Pharaoh and he declared with clarity of conviction, let my people go. Oh, Moses was a blues man. Oh, but this wasn't the only reason. These weren't the only reasons that he felt dispirited. Yes, he was born illegal. Yes, he was framed by his nation as ungrateful, but probably what hurt Moses the most was the fact that his own people treated him as incapable and ill-equipped. Anybody know what happened when they got into the wilderness? Moses risked his life and limb for his people, yet all they could think about was their own personal wants and desires. Moses sacrificed power and privilege for them, and all they could do was grumble and complain about him. When they were hungry, Moses prayed and it rained bread from the sky. When they were thirsty, God turned a rock into a water cooler. When they were lost, God used a cloud by day and fire by night and turned it into an ancient GPS system. But how did they treat Moses? Moses, we sure are hungry. We're getting sick of this bread. Moses, at least we had options to eat in Egypt. 
Moses, we're tired and sleepy. We're tired of these rocks. At least we had beds in Egypt. Moses, where are we going to live? At least in Egypt, we had roofs over our head. And for all his sacrifice, and for all of his service to the people, what did Moses receive in turn? Moses experienced an enduring truth that if you've lived long enough and lived well enough, we've all experienced or you will experience. And that is grief is the price we often pay for love. So might this be why we see Moses going on a sabbatical here in the text? Moses has had it. He's feeling defeated. He's feeling dejected. He's feeling derailed by his own people. Yet he wants to keep his dignity. He doesn't want to lose his cool. He does not want to begin treating others the way others have treated him. So what does he do? He takes some time out. He goes atop Mount Sinai. And he begins to commune with God. And I want to say today that I believe it would be well and we would all do well to find our own Mount Sinai's. We all must find our own place where we can go commune with God. Each of us at some point or another will get weary in our well-doing. Each of us at some point will feel overwhelmed by the ubiquity of bad news in life. And each of us, whether we realize it or not, are susceptible to the very things that we say we oppose. When frustrated and fatigued, it's easy for us to begin to reflect the very behaviors that you and I protest in others. So I can imagine Moses on top of Mount Sinai, talking to God. But not just talking to God, maybe talking to himself. Maybe some of his mother's teachings when he was a child began to come back to his consciousness. Oh, maybe he's remembering and he's recalling, oh, don't forget who you are, Moses. But most importantly, don't forget whose you are. The same God that delivered you out of the Nile River is the same God who will be with you when all of the challenges of life come descending down upon you. Remember who you are and whose you are. Well, maybe Moses recalled the words of a wise Hebrew teacher from his youth. That wise Hebrew teacher that might have told him even in the midst of Egypt, if you fear people saying bad things about you, Moses, well, there's a simple way then for you to live your life if you don't want people to say bad things about you. Say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. But if you're going to live a life of service, then you better prepare for a life of judgment and ridicule. But you remember this, Moses. It's not what people call you. It's what you answer to. Or maybe when Moses was on top of Mount Sinai, he remembered the advice of a kind aunt or uncle. 
Moses, God won't hold you accountable for how you treat others. God won't hold you accountable for how others treat you. But God will hold you accountable for how you treat others. So when others go low, you better learn how to go high. When others spread gossip, you spread compliments. When others spew hate, you speak love. When others feel dispirited, you keep your dignity. And for 40 days and for 40 nights, Moses stayed on top of that mountain. For 40 days, he refrained from hearing any bad news. If you have any bad news, don't bring it to me. Take it to Aaron. It was not because he desired to stick his head in the sand and ignore life's problems, but rather he wanted to come down ready to confront life's challenges with renewed energy and renewed creativity. And this is what I hope all of us might consider as we enter this season of Lent this week. For 40 days, we should seek a Sinai experience. For 40 days, we should try to refocus our minds on the things that we ought to value most. For in giving something up, you and I might have time and opportunity to replace it with something more productive and something more life-giving. Maybe it's time for some of us to come off social media. Maybe we might need to give Facebook and Twitter a break. Maybe it's time for some of us to cut off television infotainment like CNN, Fox, and MSNBC. Oh, I know some of you are saying, I'm an informed citizen. This is how I stay informed of political developments. But rather than becoming distracted by the reality show environment of current U.S. politics, a 40-day hiatus might just renew your spirit. You and I might put our phones down, cut off the television, and reconnect with friends, families, and neighbors in the flesh. For human dignity is best served by embracing other humans in dialogue and in mutual respect. So what you decide to give up this Lenten season, that's your own personal choice. But I encourage you, just as I'm encouraging myself, to make it meaningful. We can pull away from the pain, the violence, and the voyeurism of our society in order to better prepare ourselves to challenge evil and injustice for the long haul. And if you and I are going to challenge evil and injustice with both sincerity and humility, then we all need reflective Sinai moments to make sure that we aren't becoming part of the problem. The great Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran once asked, if our heart is a volcano, how can we expect flowers to bloom? This is a question that I think we would all do well to ask ourselves. Let's take some time out. Find your Mount Sinai and let God transfigure the volcanoes of dispiritedness into the gardens of love and dignity. So maybe, just maybe, 
when God snaps a photo of our lives. Though the times and the scene all around us looked dispiriting, you might still look dignified. Let the church say amen.